God's word for us this morning. You know, as I thought back over the decades now that I've been encountering God's word and preaching and and teaching with the help of the Holy Spirit, I, I know that I've encountered this text before. I've taught it, I've, I've preached it, whether it be in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet, as I prepared to share it with you all this morning, it just really struck me in a new and different way why the gospel writers, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, captured this story. Friends, I think that should tell us something. It's in all three synoptic Gospels. Jesus wants us to learn, wants us to learn from him that eternity matters. I think a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible, the theme that runs throughout the entire Bible and is highlighted in the new covenant through Jesus Christ our Lord is just what Kirk read for us from Titus. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of what? His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Friends, is that good news to you this morning? Friends, that is gospel good news. You know, you're probably aware by now a few weeks ago, Jimmy Buffett passed away. Now, who among us hasn't sung or danced to Margaritaville, right? I mean, <laughs> come on. And I'm not a big singer or dancer, but you know. But what breaks my heart a little bit is a quote that was in the, and this isn't beating up on Jimmy Buffett, but here's his quote that I found. If there is a heaven for me, he said, I bet there'll be a beach there for me as well. <laughs> and friends, I think Jesus wants us to know that there is a heaven. There is a heaven. And we don't deserve to go there. We don't deserve to go there at all, but for the grace of God. Friends, eternity matters. Oh, we might have different pictures and images of what heaven will look like and be like. But friends, heaven is, is real. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God is real, and Jesus, as our good shepherd, he is real and wants to take our hand one day, barring his return, and lead us from this life into life everlasting. And so, especially us today, as we think about the goodness of God and the blessings that he has given us, what do we do with the blessings that he has given us? And, and sometimes how do those blessings that he gives us get in the way of eternity or having us think in eternal ways? 
Pew Research, I trust them totally. Their recent data showed that making a lot of money is more valuable to people of all ages than it used to be. But particularly among young people, and I'm not picking on Jimmy Buffett, and I'm not picking on young people, but young adults ages 18 to 29 are more likely than other age groups to say having a lot of money is extremely or very important for a fulfilling life. 35%, 35% compared to about 25% for other age groups. And so as you open up the Gospels in Matthew 19, which will be our text today, Luke 18 or Mark 10, those three Gospels recount the story of a rich young ruler who asked Jesus how to enter the kingdom of heaven. How do I get to this eternal place, this eternal home? Jesus says the man must give up his wealth and the man leaves because he won't. Before Jesus answers, though, in Mark's gospel, we are told that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And friends, if you don't hear anything else today, know that Jesus, what? Loves you right where you're at. Jesus saw the man for who he was and saw that he was lost. Jesus didn't want poverty for him, but eternal satisfaction, eternal hope, eternal peace. The man left grieving. Because he couldn't accept that finding ultimate security in his wealth and fulfillment in, and in Jesus' love, that they were mutually exclusive. He just couldn't figure it out. Our culture is one, friends, of isolation and uncertainty. Jesus offers us certainty and a relationship, but it can't be on our own terms. It can't be on our own terms. And that's, that's a hard word, isn't it? We like to dictate sometimes the parameters. Now, that ne doesn't necessarily mean giving up financial st stability to have a family, but it does mean laying our desire to be comfortable at Jesus' feet and taking what he gives us in return. When we come to him in need, he looks at us and just as he looked at the rich young ruler, he loves us. And friends, we can trust whatever happens next. As I said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this interaction with Jesus and this man. If you read it in Matthew, as we will in just a minute, I promise, we get that he's young. If you read this story in Luke you'll learn that he's described as a ruler. All three Gospels let us know that he is a man of wealth. Now, this can cause us undue stress. It can also cause us undue comfort. It causes some distress as we see this young man who has been very religious his whole life. He's checking all the boxes, right? Getting an A on that report card. And yet, it appears he will not enter heaven for all eternity. We look at this and wonder, as the disciples did, how then will I get to heaven? 
Others see the implication that we're saved by grace and not by works. That's 125,000% true. We're saved by grace and not by works. And so we want to minimize the impact our love for possessions can play in hindering us from being a devoted follower of Jesus. Therefore, we want to make sure that we correctly engage or interpret this passage this morning, understanding that we can't earn salvation, and Jesus doesn't want to have us try and earn salvation, but we also need to take a good, hard look at how our possessions sometimes can take hold of us, and we like to hang on to them, don't we? (laughs) And at times, or in reality, that clouds the picture of eternity, of hope that Jesus wants us to have. So, Lord Jesus, as we engage your word today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. But ultimately, Lord, we want to be a disciple. We want to be a follower of you and you alone, for you are good. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. And God's people say, Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles that you brought with you or in the Pew Bibles to page 821. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's version, if you will, of this story and interaction. Chapter 19, I'll begin reading at verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked... Teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? Now, I just want to stop right there. What things must I do to what? Get eternal life. Did you catch that? Doing and getting. What do I need? What boxes do I need to check to get it myself? Why do you ask me? About what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Notice Jesus' words there. If you want to enter life, it's a, it's a journey. You're not getting it. You're not earning it. You're being invited by God's grace to what? Enter into life. Keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect... Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. I think an even richer way to translate this, he went away deeply grieving. 
he went away grieving because he had what? Great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be what? Last. And many who are last will be first. Wow. Some challenging words from Jesus. World historian of Christianity, Andrew Walls, was asked, if the centers of other religions remain relatively constant, why does the center of Christianity constantly change? He answers, one must conclude, I think, that there was a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. You might say that this is the vulnerability of the what? The cross. The heart of the gospel is the cross, and the cross is all about giving up power, pouring out resources and serving Andrew hinted that when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe, comfortable religion, and that's for respectable people who just keep trying to be good or to check those boxes. Friends, I think that is spot on. Eventually, it becomes virtually dormant in those places, and the center moves somewhere else. Friends, in 1900, Africa was only about 1% Christian. 1%, 1900. 123 years later, there's over 650 million Christians, and by 2050, it's expected that Africa will have 1 billion Christians. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. I mean, Jesus even says something radical. He tells us the story, right? And then he has an application, an application of the story to his disciples. 
I mean, Jesus says something radical, right? He says, you know, it's, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's you know, and then there's been people through the years that have tried to explain, oh, he didn't really mean that, right? You know what a camel looks like, friends? Do you know what a camel looks like? Let's show it, Lucas, let's show it. There I am on a camel, okay? <laughs> Just notice the shirt. You see who I'm promoting, the Steel City? Oh, that's the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then we have another picture with Pastor Joy's permission. There she, she looks a little more. I mean, these things are big and lumbersome and and laborious. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. No wonder the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? If the rich man can't be saved, who can? Friends, the disciples came from a culture that did not see wealth as evil, but rather as a reward for moral behavior. They accepted the view that if you lived a good life, if you checked the boxes, then God will reward you with prosperity. Do you see why they asked the question? If he can't get in, how are we going to get in? This was the worldview, for example, of Job's friends in the Old Testament. They assumed that material prosperity meant that you were living a good life and God was pleased while poverty was a sign that you were not living a good life and God was not pleased. Friends, Jesus continues, continues to turn worldly wisdom upside down. So the main takeaway... I want to put, and Luke is going to put that up there for us, the main takeaway this morning. I think if we're being honest, our love of possessions can hinder our discipleship journey as we seek to be a committed follower of Jesus. I think we just have to be honest with that. And as I like to say, is there ever an easy conversation with Jesus? It's hard. But let's be honest. It's impossible for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. But there's an important nuance here. Jesus didn't mean that it's a sin to be rich, a sin to have possessions. It is not that all individually Individual rich people are bad, nor are our individual poor people good. Jesus did not make such a blanket assertion, nor on the other hand was he saying, just be careful, don't fall into greed, be generous from time to time, drop an offering in the offering plate once a week. No, Jesus was saying that there is something radically wrong with all of us. I love St. Augustine's quote on these, these, these stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says, what the rich man heard, we, all of us, also heard. The gospel is Christ's voice. And so, friends, Jesus is still speaking to all of us today. 
that money has a particular power to blind us. It does. Blind us from the truth that we find in Titus, that God's gracious mercy reached down out of heaven and grabs us and loves us. Money can blind us from that truth. Now consider how Jesus counseled this young man. He did need a little bit of counseling, although on the outside, I'm sure he looked pretty put together. Young, needs were being met, educated. But I think what Jesus is telling us is that he didn't have it all together. If he had said, if he, if he had, he would have never come to Jesus and asked, what must I what? Do to inherit eternal life. Any devout Jew would have known the answer to this question. The rabbis were always posing this question in their writings and their teachings, and their answer was always the same. The answer was, obey the statute of God and avoid all sin. And he answered, I have done that, Jesus. Why then did he ask Jesus, this question. Jesus' statement, one thing you lack, allows us to capture the gist of this man's struggle, friends. Here's what the man's saying. I've done everything right. I've been successful economically, socially, morally, religiously. I've heard you're a good rabbi. I'm wondering if there's something I've missed, something I'm overlooking. I sense something is lacking. I, 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 I. And of course he was missing something. Because anyone who counts on what they are doing to get eternal life will find that in spite of everything they've accomplished, there's that emptiness, there's that insecurity, there's that doubt. Friends, when we call for you to give your time, talent, and treasure, it's as a grateful response for what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross and through the empty tomb. Amen? It's a grateful response. It isn't to lay out guilt, to invite you to participate in the ministry that Jesus is up to here at 11600 Los Alamitos Boulevard and out into our state, our nation, and the world. We are invited by God's grace into Jesus' mission. But then comes a pretty powerful moment in this story. Jesus has already accepted what the man said about having obeyed the commandments, having lived an ethical life. He believes them. He trusts them. He doesn't shout out to him, liar. But there's one thing, one thing he tells the young man to do. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And then comes the words, what? Follow me. Friends, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus' invitation to follow him is rejected. 
only time. And so, friends, what can we learn together? I think in some ways the man was saying, God is my boss, but not my savior. God is my mentor, but not my savior. And I think this is how we can see it. Because Jesus says, I want you to imagine life without money. I want you to imagine all of it gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions. All of it is gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that? I don't know about you, friends. Those are tough questions. Those are tough questions. As I said before, as I read the scripture, he wasn't just sad. He went away grieving. He went away grieving. He was in deep distress, just like Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he began to sweat blood as he grieved in deep distress. Same Greek word there. The man grieved and Jesus was grieving in the garden of Gethsemane because he was about to lose that relationship with his father when the father couldn't look upon the sin of the world that was placed upon his son. It's one thing, friends, to have God as as a boss, an example, a mentor. If you want God to be your savior, you have to replace what you're already looking to as a savior. What is it for me? What is it for you? If you want to be a follower of Jesus, friends, of course, you'll repent of your sins. But after you've repented of your sins, you'll have to repent of how you use the good things in your life to fill the place where God should be. That's the honest, hard truth. The honest, hard truth. This young man's problem is not his financial worth, it's his moral worth. It's his sense that he doesn't need the grace of God, that I can check boxes and get there as well. People who know that their Christianity is impossible, a miracle that there's nothing natural about it, it flies in the face of all of one's merits. Jesus taught this, friends, in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize they can't get there themselves. They can't give enough, do enough, believe enough, act morally enough to get there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about it. When Jesus was engaging this young man, Jesus is around, what, 31 years old? Possibly, give or take a few months. Jesus, too, is a rich young man. Richer than this man can imagine. Jesus has lived in the incomprehensible glory, wealth, love, and joy of the Trinity from all eternity. 
He has already left that wealth behind him. And Paul says that though Jesus Christ was rich, for our sakes he became poor. If we begin to understand that Jesus is the true, rich, young ruler, it's going to change our attitudes about money. For example, we won't have to try to figure out how much we have to give away. We'll begin to figure out how much we can give away. The real standard for how generous we will be is nothing short of the cross. The only way I know how to counteract the power of money in my life is to see the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to come after me, to rescue me, and to love me. And Jesus loves you too. Jesus says, my power is always moving away from the people who love power and money. My power is always moving toward people who are giving it away just as I did. So where do you want to live today, friends? Where do you want to live? The young, rich ruler decided, painfully so, to cling to what he had insisted of committing to. He clings to what he had instead of committing to what he could by God's grace obtain. And so the final slide I want to show you this morning is this, getting back to eternal life. It's a gift of God's grace found where? Only in Jesus. It is truly priceless. And it's there waiting for us to receive by God's mercy and God's grace. This encounter that Matthew, Mark, and Luke capture for us is so powerful. So we don't go away this morning judging young adults. Jimmy Buffett, the rich young ruler. But instead, we take a look in the mirror. We take a look at ourselves And say, Lord, only you are good and you have blessed me. You have blessed us with goodness. But how can we make you Savior and Lord over all? Amen? So Jesus, thank you for these challenging and difficult words. And I would pray that in the the hours and the days and the weeks ahead, that we would would chew on them spiritually, and that we we would see you as the true, rich, young ruler who, who gave it all away for our sake. Thank you for loving us. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.